Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, please. During the time of, of worship, I was uh, thinking about a hymn that, uh, that speaks of, of, of Jesus on the cross. It's entitled, At the Cross. And it was written by Isaac Watson, 1707. And it begins, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign One die. And the thought ends with a, with, with a statement, For such a worm as I. It brings us to grips with the attitude of our hearts when we think about Jesus on the cross. The humility, which is the point. Scripture tells us that God resists the proud but only gives grace to those who humble themselves. The chorus of the hymn itself is such an encouragement. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. But on that day, a day that actually prematurely turned into night, On that day that Jesus hung on that cross, we sang in that last song, your glory is so beautiful. The fact of the matter is when Jesus hung on the cross, his glory was to be seen. It was for all the world to see. We've been looking at the persecution and condemnation of Jesus in this chapter, chapter 19. And we arrive now to a time where Jesus is, in fact, on the cross itself. John doesn't give us as much detail as the other gospel writers about the things that took place right before, during, and after the cross. But he's very specific about what he does tell us. And there's some great reasons why. I've entitled this message, The Death of the Messiah, because it isn't just the death of Jesus. We have to understand who he was and why he was. And why he came. And we'll see that as we progress through our study this morning. I begin in reading verse 25 of John chapter 19 that says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, which is the way that John described himself. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that that disciple took her on, unto his own home, <clears throat> after this Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a set of vessel of, uh, full of vinegar and, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. 
In our last study, we looked at what I called the events of the cross, and in fact, they were actions that were leading to the crucifixion of Jesus itself. Jesus bearing his cross. Jesus being crucified between two sinners. The title placed on the cross on the orders of Pontius Pilate. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. Today we'll look at events from the cross of Christ, from the cross itself, beginning with Jesus' supporters' love for him and his great love for his mother. The Apostle John, in this portion of this chapter, turns from a terribly sordid scene to a touchingly sad scene. He turns us from his foes to his friends. He turns us from greed to grief and from the soldiers to his suffering supporters. And he simply says in verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, on close examination of that verse, we find it uncertain whether the apostle is referring to three women or four. I'm very thankful, though, that the King James translators put a comma there after the phrase, his mother's sister. Because that gives us a clue that there were four, not three. But if we compare the various gospel accounts, this is what we discover. And obviously it is significant because it is written in scripture for our learning. I'm not at all worried about talking about these four women because it is, again, significant to our understanding of what was happening that day. There are references made about the women at the cross of Jesus, and here is one in John chapter 19, but there's also one in Matthew 27, and uh, I, I noticed uh, last night that I had left one, one verse out, so I want to take you to Matthew 27. Uh, you're going to see verse 56 up here, but let me read verse 55, because it's part of what I forgot to put in my notes for upstairs. But in Matthew 27, verse 55, it says, And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. And here's verse 56, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of jo James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Three women. You'll notice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not mentioned here. We'll get back to that in a moment. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And the mother of Zebedee's children. If you go to Mark chapter 15, three women are mentioned there as well. And again, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not mentioned. But in Mark 15, verses 40 and 41, it says, there were also women looking on afar off. And by the way, afar off doesn't mean that they were a real distance away. They were near enough, but, but not right at the cross, but they were close enough. And there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph. John tells us that's the wife of Cleophas. And then Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. So first, John alone mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course. But all three mention Mary Magdalene. Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew and Mark mention Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, a woman that John is, uh, describes as wife of Cleophas. Mark adds the information that her son, James, was known as the less to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. 
Now, Matthew mentions the mother of the sons of Zebedee, while Mark mentions Salome, and John mentions the sister of Jesus' mother. So evidently, they are all referring to the same woman, which means that Salome was Mary's sister, the aunt of the Lord Jesus, and her sons, James and John, were his cousins. Isn't that interesting? You know that in the Mexican, uh, in the Hispanic culture, primarily the Mexican Hispanic culture, you know, we, we discover that we have cousins we've never known. They're everywhere. And if we're not sure about it, we go ahead and say, we, we call them primo anyway, you know, that means cousin, you know. So we got primos everywhere, you know, that's, that's kind of the way we are. But sometimes we discover that we have cousins that we didn't really know we had. So here we see that Jesus had James and John as cousins. By the way, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin as well. So don't get upset, you know, when you have family involved in ministry and say, well, there's too much family involved in ministry. Well, family's good. By the way, we're all family, aren't we? If we love Jesus. With all that in mind, then. If all of this is the case, and by the way, remember, two of the gospel writers do not mention Mary at the cross. Only John. So if this is the case, then John is mentioning four women that are distinguished by the other gospel accounts as being near the cross of Jesus. And so, apart from John then, the only loved ones of Jesus who came near and to the cross were women. And John and these women were certainly there at great risk. Let's not forget that Jesus was considered a revolutionary in the eyes of Rome, and he was considered a heretic in the eyes of his own people, but especially the hypocritical religious leaders. And they ran the risk of ridicule and arrest by standing at or nearby the cross. Yet they took the risk to be by Jesus and to be near Jesus. And there is no greater explanation for them being there but that they loved him dearly. They loved him dearly. They loved him with all of their hearts. You know, the Apostle Paul came to understand Jesus' declaration in Luke 9.23. We we focused on that a little bit last time, where Jesus said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul understood that and wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, because what he talks about is this love of Christ that constrains us, that compels us. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The love of Christ constraineth us. And it isn't so much that we're dealing with the love of Jesus toward us that constrains us. That's true. But it is the love that we have for the Lord that compels us, that constrains us, that binds us, you see, to him. It's our love that we're able to say that he died for us. And we live not unto ourselves, but unto him. That's that love that Paul understood. In Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to be in Hebrews a lot today, so I'll just kind of let you know, uh, keep a bookmark there in Hebrews. And by the way, I, I, I'm one who, who truly believes, after years of studying this, that, uh, that Paul was, was the author of the book of Hebrews, even though some people will say no. That's okay. It doesn't tell us, but I, I believe it is. But that's for another time. i got about two hours of, of worth to show that, but I'm not going to do it today. But Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13, it says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, which means he suffered outside of the gate of Jerusalem. He suffered outside of the city of Jerusalem. Let us go therefore, or let us go forth therefore unto him 
without the camp bearing his reproach. Let us go to where he is. That is what these women did. That is what John did. They went outside of the city. They went where he was. They went forth to where he was. They did, in fact, what Jesus himself did when we were reading about this last, last week, that Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the skull, the place of the skull. He went forth. He went forth not as a victim, but as a victor. He went forth knowing that he was going to conquer sin and death. But he had to go to the cross himself. And it is the love of God and the love of Christ that compels us to go to the cross as well. That is why John, that is why Paul, I should say, says that we are constrained. Bound to the cross. Bound to follow him. Bound to bear our own cross. And bear his reproach. For he bore us. And he bore our sin. And he bore our shame. And then think about what, these, what, what, uh, what Jesus did on behalf of these women. Mary Magdalene, for sure. Mary Magdalene had been delivered by Jesus from a terrible form of demon possession. And she, she would have gone through fire and flood for Jesus. And she was there. And then Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Salome, were among Jesus' followers as well. You know, it's also generally accepted that, that uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, the Lord's mother, was dead at, by this time. And that she was now a widow. And of course, her other children were not yet believers. The Lord looked down from his cross that day. And he saw this lonely and neglected little group but he especially saw his mother. Now we know that his thoughts may have been on others and not on himself. That is, that is just clear. Jesus never thought about himself. He thought about you and about me. Every fiber of his being existed for others and not for himself. And even in death, even in death, his mind and being were were set on taking care of others. Even on the cross. Even being placed upon that tree. A bloody pulp. After being scourged. And beaten. Thorns from his crown dug deep into his skull. And he cared about his mother. He was touched with the feelings of Mary's hurt and Mary's pain. And in the last moments of his life upon earth, he made arrangements for her care. Now this is so significant and so important for, for us not to miss this. Verse 26 of John 19, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. It took every ounce of breath that he had to say those words. Hanging on the cross, his lungs filled with blood, hard to breathe. But he says to his mother, Behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, now don't, don't miss this, from that hour, that disciple took her into his home. That hour, not, not tomorrow, not next week, not this evening, that hour. Now, we know that this was not the first time that Jesus would refer to Mary as woman. If you remember back in John chapter 2, and I don't remember exactly how long ago it was since we were in John chapter 2, but it was a good while back. But in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, let me recall the, the situation. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. 
And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Interesting that they weren't invited, they were just called. <laughs> you know, you know, normally you get invited to a wedding. No, they, he got called to the wedding. And his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said, saith unto him, they have no wine. Now notice that she's not asking for it, she's just telling, she's making a statement. They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do what he says. You see, what we don't want to miss here is that the Lord put Mary into a new relationship to him without any discourtesy, without any harshness in using that term, woman. In fact, we find that it was a statement of respect as we taught however long ago it was. But you see, what Jesus had to mention was that everything that he did had to do with that hour. Everything he did had to do with that hour. And it wasn't that hour yet. It wasn't that time yet. Now, we need to understand this. Mary could not know the timings of God in Jesus' life. Because you see, Mary... was not without sin like Jesus. Now some people would really, you know, go into some kind of a problem with that, you know. But we're going to see in Scripture how that is quite important for our understanding of what's happening here at the cross. Mary could not know the timings of God in Jesus' life. Now, she knew some things, but she knew nothing yet about that hour when he would have his glory displayed on that cross. But there is one thing that she did know. If you could turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 for just a moment. In Luke chapter 1, which is of course the, the account of, of the preparation for the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming from heaven and taking upon himself flesh doing so in the person in, in the life of this young maiden named Mary in Luke chapter 1 we'll begin at verse 30 it says the angel said unto her an angel came to declare this unto her and of course there was this fear in her as to why, why her and, and all. But the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, which means God is salvation. That is Jesus' name, Yeshua. God is salvation. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Now, all of these terms are very significant because they all point to this one person that's going to be born of Mary to be the Messiah of Israel. These are all terms that refer to the Messiah and can only refer to the Messiah of Israel. A son shall be called, uh, his name Yeshua, he shall be great, he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. How, how much more clear can it be that this is Messiah, that this is the anointed one of God? And he shall reign over the house of Yaakov, Jacob, forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, what does that say about Jesus? His kingdom The Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son. And then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? 
He has yet to know a man intimately. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. A few verses later, down in verse 46. Still waiting for the birth of Jesus. Mary gives this great prayer. Some have called it the Magnificat. Verse 46 simply says, and Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary has just pointed out her need for a Savior. Just like you and I have a need for a Savior. That's a beautiful thing to see here. She goes on to say, For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. A low estate belongs to one who is humbled. By this presentation. That means that she herself will be the one chosen. To bring into this world. The Messiah of Israel. For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. This is not a boast by the way. This, this, is, this is a statement of humility. It's a statement of wonder that, the, that, that every generation would call her blessed for what God had chosen in her. After Jesus was born, he was taken to Simeon the priest. Form of dedication, as it were, but Simeon blessed them and said, and said unto Mary, this is verses 34 and 35 of chapter 2 now of Luke. Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Now, please take note of that because that's prophetic. It isn't just about Israel in the time of Jesus, it is about Israel in our time today. Please keep that in mind. And for a sign which shall be spoken against. Well, how many people have spoken against the things that Jesus represents to us today? And then it says in verse 35, and this is rather parenthetic here, so, yea, it says, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Simeon says to Mary, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That sword pierced through her heart that day as she stood at the cross. But step back just a moment. Because Jesus knew. Jesus knew the idolatrous position that would be given her in centuries to come. And let me say that no ground whatsoever should be given to distortions of truth. No ground should be given to distortions of truth. There are those who today would teach us or would tell us that Mary deserves honor and veneration and worship. That she is the an object for prayer. And this, of course, we know as, as part of Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine. There's a church in Vichy, France, called the Church of Mary the Healer, where most of the 
pictures in that church dominate uh, the dome's uh, mural and artwork. Uh, at the base of this dome in, in this church are two quotations, two messages. One is from John 3.16, a part of John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, son, so it refers to Jesus. But the second quotation or, or, or message that is at the, end, at the bottom of this or at the, uh, uh, the base of this dome is a, a quotation from St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and it is, and I, and I quote, it is God's will that we should receive all things through Mary. The, the first is true. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The second quotation is false. Because there's nothing in scripture that tells us that all things are received through Mary. Mary would be the first one to tell you that's false. Mary was Jesus' mother, but in no way must she be allowed any say in his redemptive work. So one other church, the Church of Mary Maggiore in Rome, is one that is dedicated to the veneration of Mary. In the courtyard of that particular church is a statue of a cross. On one side of the cross hangs Jesus. On the back side of it, is Mary standing there also, which is to <clears throat> uh, bring forth the doctrine that is the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary being the co-redemptrix with Christ. But there's nothing in scripture that says that. In fact, what we're going to see today disproves that immediately. So in no way must she be allowed any say in Christ's redemptive work. Because a great gulf had to be fixed. A great gulf had to be fixed between the mother and the Messiah. Between the mother and the master. Between the mother and the one mediator between God and man. Which the scripture says is the man, Christ Jesus. There has to be that gulf. Biblically, scripturally, truthfully. And this Mary knew at the cross, by the way. Mary knew this at the cross. And so we see that John takes Mary to his own home that very hour. In fact, that very moment. Because remember that Mary is not mentioned in Matthew's gospel nor in Mark's gospel at that very moment of Jesus' death. They are actually mentioned after Jesus dies. That very moment that Jesus dies, Mary is not there. And neither is John. So Jesus said, take her. This is your mother. That very hour, he took her to his home. Because only Jesus could be on that cross. And as Jesus was touched with his mother's hurt and pain, so he takes care of us as well. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, <clears throat> let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but was, was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus alone, without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that was the first action that we see Jesus from Jesus being on the cross. The next action and event on the cross that John mentions was Jesus' agonizing thirst and, and the, deliberate of, the deliberate effort to fulfill Scripture. Look at verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it 
to his mouth. Now let me give you a quick picture here that, that the, the cross was not up as high away that, uh, that he couldn't be reached, you know, unless you took a big long pole. No, it, more than likely his feet were about two or three feet off the ground. So it wasn't that far to reach over with, with a branch of hyssop that they dipped into some vinegar, which was actually vinegar wine. And they, they put it there and, and, and put it to his mouth. Now, Jesus was bound to be thirsty. We can fairly be accurate in assuming that it had been hours since Jesus had, had, had a drink of water. But, what, but we need to note that the stress of Jesus' words was not so much that he was physically thirsty. He wasn't complaining of thirst and not even asking for a drink. He simply said, I thirst. And John comments that this was made, this statement was made to fulfill scripture. So the stress was upon his fulfilling of the word of God. Take, for example, Psalm 69, verse 21. This is exactly the verse that Jesus was fulfilling that moment when he said, I thirst. It says, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So this was to show that Jesus was truly the promised Messiah, the one who fulfills scripture, and whose mind was set on fulfilling the scriptures pertaining to the Messiah. And to show that Jesus had come as the promised Messiah to do the will of God his Father, dying as the sacrifice for man. Now Jesus would never do his Father's will unthoughtfully. He would never do his Father's will with deadened senses and a semi-conscious mind. No matter how beaten he was, no matter the condition of his body at that moment that he was hanging on the cross. He was very much alert. Everything had to be fulfilled. Not one thing could be left undone. No, he had to work. To do in, he had work to do in sacrificing his life for man. This, is, this was his task. This is what he came to do. He was to taste death for all men. And he would taste it in full consciousness, being as mentally alert as possible. We think of the statement in Hebrews 2 verses 9 and 10 that says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, the fulfillment of, of, of the scriptures of uh, Psalm 8. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Fulfilling scripture. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That isn't to say that Jesus wasn't perfect. Just remember that the word perfect in the scriptures refers to completeness. And Jesus was going to complete the work to the letter, to the point, to the, the, the dotting the I's and the crossing of the T's. There was not one thing that was going to be left undone on the cross. And so in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. In Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 7 it says, Wherefore when he cometh into the world he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. And verse 7 says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. Here the Messiah says, Here I come. It is written of me that I come. And what is his duty? To do thy will, O God. This was the Father's will. 
As Peter said to the crowd at Pentecost to accomplish the predetermined counsel of God. So we know that one of the soldiers then took pity on Jesus and moistened his lips with that cheap vinegar wine that more than likely the soldiers were drinking. And that little drink of vinegar didn't fully quench Jesus' thirst, but it did enable him to utter that shout of triumph in verse, 20, in verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, to tell us die. To tell us die. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Gave up the spirit. And at that moment he died. Accomplishing what he came to do. Jesus died. In the Greek word, uh, in, in the Greek, the word to telestai, as we know already, is the English phrase, it is finished. And what it means in its full sense of understanding is it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. That's what to telestai means. It is finished, it stands finished, it always will be finished. Does not have to be repeated. Does not have to be fulfilled week in and week out. Once for all. It is as if Jesus was saying with those with that statement, I have completed the work assigned to me. I have completed my task. It was a term that was used by a priest charged with the examination of an animal for sacrifice. <coughs> and if that animal was found faultless, the priest would say, it is finished. The exact translation from the Greek to the Hebrew or Hebrew to the Greek Either way, it meant the same thing. It is finished. It stands finished. It always will be finished. So Jesus dying on the cross completes the picture that the Father had been painting, so to speak. That the story that, had been, that he had been writing now for centuries. When an author finishes his book, He's very glad to put the last period on the last word of the last phrase of the last chapter of a book. And that exclamation point, if you will, is the term to telestai. It is finished. The end. But for us, not just the end. It's the beginning to all who believe. Because of the cross, we can now understand all of the ceremonies, all of the rites, all of the rituals, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. We can understand that everything that was given to Moses by God himself, of the pattern of the tabernacle, of all of the materials that were to be used for the tabernacle, of all of the craftsmanship that was to be taken into the tabernacle and to be used and the making of all of the implements to, to bring sacrifices before the tabernacle unto God. Everything, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to his life, to his death, to his burial and to his resurrection. Everything. Every material. Every metal. Every precious metal, every thread that was to be woven into the curtains, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. 
pointed to the work of the cross that day. And by the way, there's one more meaning for this word to telestai. It was a word that was used in business, a word that was used by the merchants. When they would say to telestai, they were saying the debt is paid in full. The debt is paid in full. There is nothing that you nor I can add to what Jesus Christ has already done. As I say time and time again, the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. But everything that Christ has done, he's done it himself. And there's nothing that you and I can add. When Jesus gave himself on the cross, he met the righteous demands of a holy law and of a holy God. He paid our debt in full. None of the old covenant sacrifices could take away sins. I mean, their blood could only cover sin. Then it would be washed away and then it would be started again. And it would just be over and over and over and over again. But the Lamb of God shed his blood. And that blood can take away the sins of the world. That blood has the power to take away the sin of the world. And only the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was shed for you and for me. Even in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, when we meet the person of John the Baptist. Well, we've already met him earlier than this, but when we see him meeting Jesus for the first time, and by the way, it was his cousin, Primos. He looks upon Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, I want to close with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice. He doesn't just appear in heaven in the presence of God. He appears in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once... And I would underline, circle, arrows to that word once and, you know, highlight it in every color you can. But now, once, in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Once. That's all it takes. That's all Jesus needed. He didn't need a dry run. He only needed to die once. And he only needed to rise once, which he would do. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. As we close with verse 28, I, I want to bring to mind a couple of things. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. My question to you today is, what are you looking for today? What are you looking for? Are you looking for $1.6 billion? <laughs> what you know is not what's going to be what you get, thanks to the Government. Is that what you're looking for? 
Or are you looking for Jesus? Who promised? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Are you looking for Jesus? Even Jesus himself in, in, in Luke 21 verse 28 said, lift up your head. He says, keep looking up and lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. You ever wondered about the order of that statement? He doesn't say, okay, lift up your heads. Now look up. And, 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 no, he says, look up and lift up your head. For your redemption draws near. It draweth nigh. Because we are to look for Jesus and we are to walk victorious in Christ. Because those who look down aren't looking up. And they're looking at the world and not at the coming of Christ. We need to be looking for Jesus. As important as Jesus dying on the cross was for our eternal salvation as important as it was it is important for us to remember that when he died and rose again and today sits at the right hand of the father he has gone to prepare a place for you in other words Jesus has kept his word for you and he's going to come back keeping his word and he's going to gather us unto himself. That where he is, there you'll be too. Because I'll tell you this, I don't want to be here no more. I don't know about you. But no matter what the world throws out at you to try to keep you here, $1.6 billion. Or $500 million. This isn't our world anymore. 